All right, so I'm not sponsored by Android, but statistically, if I show you cute animals, you're more inclined to listen to me. So, you know, the whole thing, cute animals, me, cute animals, me. All right, let's focus. Um, actually, there is a point to that video I'll share in just a little bit, but, uh, but I wanted to introduce myself. If you're visiting with us, we're so grateful to have you here for our Harvest Festival my name is Jake Rock, and I, and along with my very pregnant wife, who's around here somewhere, she's working hard, and uh, Scott and Danielle Sweeney, we have the privilege of leading the church here in Desert Cities Church of Christ, and, uh, and we love this church so much. And tonight, I want to start off, uh, start off our sermon here with a premise I'm sure that we can all agree on, all right? You want to go to heaven, Right? Everybody in this room, you want to make it to heaven, right? If you're here today, it's got to be at least in part that you want this. Not just because we have an awesome festival going on, or because our worship was so good, or that you heard that I was preaching. You know, that you're here in part because you want to go to heaven. And that also means you've probably taken a five-minute good look around at this life that we're in, and you've realized, you know what? This isn't it. This can't be all that there is to it. This is, there's got to be more than this. You know, as much as there are good things in life, life is also temporary and incredibly frustrating. Spend 30 seconds on any news feed. And you're going to see all kinds of fun things going on in life. I was going to show pictures, but I didn't want to discourage us. But there are protests right now going on in, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Spain, in Hong Kong, trying to up, uproot the governments that are going on there. There's got to be more than this. There's food recalls on everything from TV dinners to baby food that I saw this morning. There's got to be more than this. Airlines you booked. Go out of business while you're out of the country, leaving you stranded. You heard about this, right? The British airline that like went under and left like 4,000 people misplaced for like a week. There's got to be more than this. Your starting quarterback goes down with an injury. There's got to be more than this. And the good news is, God wants us to go to heaven. I'm going to show you a scripture here that should encourage you. The Lord isn't slow about keeping His promises as some people think He is. In fact, God is patient because He wants everyone to turn from sin and no one to be lost. Despite every mainstream media's projection of a wrathful, vengeful God that is out to get us, what the Bible tells us is that God is exactly the opposite. He is patient. He's sparing our lives because He wants to give us the best possible opportunity to go be with Him in heaven. He doesn't want one person, doesn't matter how bad they are, to go to hell. So He set up this plan. Out of His love, He sent Jesus to die for our sins. That if we make Jesus Lord of our lives, if we become disciples, if we repent and get baptized, what Paul says in Ephesians 1, something really cool. 
And you were also, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with, in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. What Paul is telling us here is that, look, when you turn yourself fully into Jesus, when you repent, when He's Lord of your life, when you're baptized, He gives you the Holy Spirit to hold your place in heaven during this life. But the truth is, life isn't easy. I'm 32 years old. I've been a Christian for 18 years. I've got a third kid on the way. And life is not getting less complex. But again, the good news is that God didn't mean for this journey, the road to heaven, to be one that we take alone. In the creation story, out of all the six days of creation, everything that God made, there was only one time in that process that God said something wasn't, wasn't good. In Genesis 2.18, it said, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Amen. It is not good for you and I to be by ourselves. There's a reason why the most... Horrific torture you can do to a person is isolation. I was watching and reading stuff about that. The isolation just, it messes with our brains. Because God didn't create us to be alone. He made us to love. He made us for partnership, for companions. We saw that even in the animals that he made. Right? I love all those like unlikely animal friendship videos. Things that don't make sense, like tigers and bears should be fighting each other. But... There's, there's something in God's creations that he made us for relationship. And there's a reason that the topic of most songs in the world, the most popular songs of all time is what? Love. The journey to heaven is our road to choose. But it's a road that we're supposed to run with relationships. We're starting a series in our church today. You guys are getting the kickoff right now called Seven People Who Help You Get to Heaven. That God wants us to make it to heaven, but there's people in our lives that help us to get there. Today our title for my sermon is The Perfect Plan. Alright, let's say a prayer and we're going to jump into the Word here together. Father, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we get to come be in your presence right now. Uh, thank you, God, that you are good. That you are good in spite of who we are. Father, that you give us the hope of heaven in spite of how messed up, how selfish, how, how, how much we wander and we get distracted. That, God, you desire for us to be with you in eternity. I pray, Father, that you, that you will help us to, to give our full attention to your scriptures. That it will take deep root in our hearts. Father, we'll see your love for us, but we'll also see the journey and the road that you have marked out for us. We love you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, turn over to 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, there's actually some in the pews in different places, or you can pull it up, pull it up on your phone. We're going to pick up in verse 13. This is going to be our main scripture for today. says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. 
He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love his bro- their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We'll stop there. Alright, so this is the Apostle John writing to us here. And he starts off in verse uh, 13 through 16, affirming what we just talked about in Ephesians a little bit ago. Uh, God sent Jesus to die to save the world. Amen? Amen? We have to choose to make him Lord, become a disciple, repent and get baptized, and that's when we get his spirit. We get to live in God's love and rely on it, is what this, is what this scripture just says. You know, in America... This is a lot of where we leave a relationship with God. It's personal. It's only between me and God. And no one else. Only God can judge me. But the problem with that is that this isn't how God thinks. God never intended for this to be just this personal you and me in a closet with God type relationship. We're off in a monastery somewhere on a mountain. God meant for this to be a collective thing that we do together. Even when the Bible uses the word you, he doesn't mean you the individual, he means you the collective most of the time. And this is way outside of our thinking, because in America we love knowing how special we are. That me the individual, I'm one in a million. My relationship with God, just me and God all the way to heaven. But whenever we think this way, we're headed for disaster. Every time I have ever tried to be righteous on my own, or even just tried to do life, just exist on this earth, I fall flat on my face time and time again. Does anybody relate to this? Alright, we're, we're feeling a little sleepy in here. Alright? I want to encourage you guys. As we're going through this, not for my encouragement, but for us to be engaged, let's, yeah, amen, let's, let's be in this together, okay? It's going to help us to get in this, right? So when I was a freshman in college, I was in Gainesville, Florida, home of the greatest football team in the planet. All right. And uh, and I was out there. I was 3000 miles away from my parents. They were here in California. I was out in Florida. Uh, there was a lot that I hadn't experienced in life yet. I got my first paycheck and, I, and before that I had a prepaid uh, debit card and that debit card was, was empty. It was gone. So I got my paycheck. Never having been to a bank by myself before, I walked down the street to the little credit union right around the corner from my house. I walked in, stood in line, totally insecure. Got up there, slid my check on the table, said, I need to cash this. And she goes, well, do you have an account with us? No. She goes, well, I can't cash this then. So I walked home, staring at my check, going, I have money. 
this paper says I have money. But I can't get to the money. And I'm broke. And I have no food. And so I realized very quickly that I needed help figuring out what to do with life. So I went home, grabbed a couple of my roommates, and I was like, all right, guys, I've never opened a checking account before. What do I do? Like two or three of my roommates backed me up. Like, all right, you got to pick a bank, go through the whole process. And that started, that was like a very big turning point for me in realizing I've got to grow up and take ownership of my life. Right? But I needed help. In the same way spiritually, growing up as a minister's kid, I thought I had this whole God and church thing pretty much dialed in. You know, I've been around this my whole life. I was born into this church. Man, I know what's what. Until I studied the Bible. And when I studied the Bible, I realized very quickly, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I've been calling myself a Christian my whole life, and I never was a Christian. I thought I inherited that by being the minister's kid. Yeah, PK curses, it's real. And so as I was studying the Bible, it took these guys in my life asking me questions, showing me scriptures that made me realize, all right, I don't know really what God is looking for from me. I had been trying to do the right thing, but I was playing church most of the time. And so I needed somebody else to help me. And maybe in some ways more significantly, when I was a teenager and into my early 20s, I I battled with an addiction to pornography. And time and time again, on my own, I would try to make efforts. I would make promises to myself. I would... I would try all these little techniques to try to kind of trick myself out of, out of being tempted. Even one time I took a little like Huck Finn blood oath. I thought that that would somehow make it more significant. Like I like wrote a, wrote a whole thing and pricked my finger and was like, yeah, now it's really serious. And even in spite of all that stuff, you know what happened? I would fall. Again and again and again. I know it's really sad, Faith. Thank you. But the truth of the matter is, is because I was so ashamed of it, because I knew how much I hated it, how it made me feel about myself, I kept a lot of that to myself and suffered in silence because of it. It took me finally submitting myself to some men in my life that could help me when things finally started to change. And my life is full of stories like this. I could just go on and on and on about the stupid things I've tried to do. Things I tried, my attempts to be spiritual on my own, where I just fail in spectacular fashion. I'm a living example. There's a scripture in Proverbs 14, 12 that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. That has been like a lot of my life story. Jake thinking he knows what's best, Jake thinking he knows how to be spiritual. Jake thinking he knows how to be a grown-up and be life. And then it doesn't work out. And I damage myself and the people in my life along the way. And in this scripture, God is trying to shake us out of that thinking. There is no such thing as you and me personally, all alone, nobody else matters. Matter of fact, he doubles down in verses 20 through 21. When he says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. 
Matter of fact, you cannot love God who you can't see if you don't love the person sitting in front of you who you can see. There are things in our relationship with God that John's trying to get at here. Things in our relationship with God that we will never experience without relationships with spiritual people. And I'm going to touch more on this at the end. But there's a problem, you say. People are severely flawed. We're messed up. There's that whole, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God thing. Hurt people hurt people. The Dodgers are like a bad girlfriend that constantly breaks your heart. (laughs) And all of these things are true. All of us have been hurt by people. Every single one of us in the room. Not, Not one person in this room, from little faith all the way up to the oldest person in the room, has not been hurt. Matter of fact, it's oftentimes the people that are closest to us. It's the family. The best friends. The people that we've known for years and years. Those are the people that often hurt us the most. You know, my my wife, as sweet and as pregnant as she is, she's hurt me. And she will continue to hurt me. Don't let the belly fool you. She's got, a, she's got a baby boy in there. She's flowing with testosterone right now. But you know, conversely, as much as I love and care about her, I hurt her more than anybody. The nature of an intimate relationship is hurt and forgiveness. It's a bunch of messed up people trying desperately to learn to love each other and forgive each other in spite of being hurt. But if people are so flawed, Jake, if we're all so messed up, what am I to do? God says I can't love him if I don't love people, but I don't trust people. Been hurt too many times. What are we to do? But God's answer is here in this scripture. I'm going to show you verse 18 again. Ignore the top part. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What John is trying to get across here, when he's talking about perfect love, he's not meaning this like perfect romantic relationship with somebody that doesn't exist. There has never been a perfect romantic relationship on this earth. Amen, Amen, right? Yeah. But what John is saying is there, there is a perfect love, though. It's a perfect love that only comes from God. And it says, because, because God loves us, because we choose to love God, he's saying, you can trust people. You can forgive people. You can give your heart to people, not because of them, not because they're so good, but because you trust me. God's message to us is like, yeah, people are going to hurt you. They're going to disappoint you. They're going to let you down. They're going to do things they told you that they were never going to do. 
But you can love people and give your heart to people anyways because I'm perfect. Because my love is so good. It's so beyond anything you've experienced here on this earth. It drives the fear out of you of giving your heart again. Out of the confidence of who God is and how powerful his love is for us, I can entrust myself to you without fear. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul says something similar. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're not even going to get really into the submission topic. That's a whole sermon all by itself. But he's saying, I can willfully choose to submit myself to any person in this room. Not because you're worthy of submission, but because God is. Because Jesus is. And out of my reverence for him, I don't have to worry about what you're going to do to me because God's got it. I can give my heart to you to help me be close to God, be the husband that God wants me to be, be the father and friend that I want to be because I trust and I revere God. But let me just say here, This is a whole lot easier said on a Sunday sermon than done. I fully, 100% acknowledge that. And this is a battle no matter who you are, no matter if you consider yourself a Christian or not. Every single one of us has to contend with this. But the truth is, if if you don't know what John is talking about here, then that means there's something about God that you've never experienced before. If there's a part of you that doesn't want to give your heart to people, it's because there's something in God you've never experienced before. Without this, without the concept of revering who God is, we can never give our heart fully to people or to God. And so if we're putting this together, if we're looking at at, at this this, this plan of God, this, the way he wants you and I to get to heaven, let me tell you what his perfect plan is. This is God, the creator of the universe. This is what he set up for you and me. One imperfect person helping another imperfect person to get to heaven. This is God's great plan. God's great plan is for you and I to decide to trust each other, to give our heart to each other, to help each other to be righteous. And yeah, you're going to hurt me, and I'm going to hurt you along the way. But luckily, because of what Jesus has done, we have the ability to forgive and learn how to love each other. It means that we can sharpen, train, admonish, and mature each other on our path to heaven. Get all these imperfect people together in a, in a room, call it church, and say, now help each other get there. And sometimes from an imperfect person, that means, man, I need you to just encourage me. I need you to tell me, you know what, Jake, I'm, I've been there. It's all right. We're going to get through it. There's other times when I say, Jake, you need to suck it up. You're whining and you're being selfish. Remember what Jesus did. And I want to clarify here. I'm not exempt from this. I don't get pulpit privilege. 
I have a hard time trusting you just as much as you might have a hard time trusting me. But I need you. And you need me. What, what John says in this chapter here, I want to reiterate it again because this is a, this is a, this is a kicker. It's awesome. It says that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. How many of you, this is not a hand raising, this is rhetorical. How many of you, if you died today, you feel like you would be confident to stand before God? If this was the last day for each and every one of us, how many of us feel like we would stand before God with complete confidence, God, I've done exactly what you wanted me to do? I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable. But what John is telling us here in this passage is that the way we get some of that confidence is our relationships with each other. Me spending time with spiritual people helps me to have spiritual confidence to be able to stand before God one day. That's pretty awesome. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. I am a very insecure person. That question bothers me. It's kind of like the whole, it's like the parables where Jesus talks about Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these different things? And I tell you, I never knew you. Those scriptures scare the mess out of me. But John is telling me, I can have confidence before God because of my relationship with you. You know what that tells me? We can't miss this. I've got a story here for you. Two weeks ago, the sports world saw something happen that was thought to be impossible. I don't know if you guys read about it. A 34-year-old man named... I'm going to butcher this. I practiced it too. Iliud Kipchoge. He's a Kenyan man. Ran a marathon in under two hours. That's his time right behind him. Okay. For perspective... He ran about a four and a half minute mile for 26.2 miles. All right. Like, the, like I watched these videos after it happened. They had other marathon runners get up on a treadmill and run at that pace. And they couldn't last for more than a minute. This dude was flying to get that time. And part of why this is so significant is this has actually been compared to Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile time. That before that time, nobody thought it was possible. It was like two years ago, there was an Olympic uh, or gold medal marathon winner that was quoted saying, breaking a two-minute marathon or a two-hour marathon is impossible. There are other things that human beings can do on this earth, but this is impossible. And he did it. And there's all kinds of things that went into this, as you can imagine. His shoes, his training regimen, the race was set up just for him, so there's nobody on the course. That's why it's not like an official world record, but it is. He'd been training, and he'd been a runner all of his life to get to this point. But as remarkable as this is, he didn't do it alone. Along his race, these are his starting buddies. Along his race, he had 41 world-class runners with him. 41. Most of them were Olympic athletes. Because, again, how can you keep a four and a half minute mile pace 
And they would just trade him out. But they, would, they ran with him. They ran alongside of him, in front of him, or behind him for the entire race. That's their little grouping. And if you're wondering what that is, he had a pace car with lasers shining on the ground in front of him to make sure that they stayed at the right pace. Because the, the, breaking it was going to be based on seconds. So if he was like 436 instead of 435, he wouldn't have got the record. But these guys ran along with him. They would trade out when they got tired. They ran in front of him to cut through the drag. And also a guy was explaining that they were in front of him because if there's somebody in front of you, it's easier for you to keep pace mentally. If you're in front the whole time, you get worn out easier. So they ran with him the entire time, eliminating drag, keeping pace. And it was only until the last mile that they hung back. Let him finish the race on his own. And this story is so incredible. If you don't, if you don't know, what happened with Roger Bannister when he broke the four-minute mile time, something that nobody thought ever was, could be done, it was like three people broke it again in a year. Something happens when you do something everybody thought was impossible. They start to believe that it can be possible. Now, where does this connect to us? This story, as I was reading about it, made me think a lot about our journey to heaven. And the race that, you know, God calls it a race several different times in the New Testament. Just like Kipchoge, it's our race to run. Nobody is running the race for you. Nobody can get to heaven with you not making effort. You have to decide to engage. You have to decide to make Jesus Lord of your life. It's your race to run, but it's a race that requires relationships to finish. As amazing as this was, he couldn't have done it without those people. We're going to take communion together in just a moment. Before we do that, I'm going to show you a Greek word, because I'm here. A Greek word that shows up 20 times in the New Testament. Koinonia. Koinonia. There it is. Okay. I knew I could do it. Now, this word shows up in the New Testament several times, and it usually appears as the word fellowship. So you think Acts chapter 2, when it says the disciples were together, and they fellowshiped with one another, they broke bread, all that different stuff. So oftentimes when we see this word show up in the scriptures, it's kind of, it's kind of projected as like they just were together. Like we're, we're hanging out, we're just buddies watching the game kind of a thing. But this actually doesn't describe what the word really is. In 1 John 1, before it gets to the scriptures that we've been reading today, it says, The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. What it really means, the word koinonia, is it describes a close connection. It's kind of like you can sit next to somebody on a bus and not be connected to them at all. Right? That's not what koinonia is. That's not what fellowship is. This word describes something. It's, it's close connection and communion. 
It's participation with each other. It's engaging in each other's lives. It's when you're together, you're looking to try to be on the same heart level together. And what God did here, through koinonia, is set it up that our vertical communion with God, what Paul just, or what John just told us, is our fellowship, our koinonia with God, is set up to be a symbiotic relationship with our horizontal relationships with each other. This scripture right here just tied our direct vertical relationship to God to our horizontal relationships with each other. They rely on each other. And this all comes together in a special way with what we're going to do here next. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says, The cup we use in the Lord's Supper, and for which we give thanks to God when we drink from it, we are sharing in the blood of Christ. When we, and the bread that we break when we eat it, we are sharing in the body of Christ. That word sharing that's brought up there, that's koinonia. The same fellowship that we have with one another the same fellowship that we have with God, the point of the time that we have together to even take communion is meant to be fellowship with what Jesus did. And again, demonstrating that our relationship with each other is connected to our vertical relationship with God. God said, I want you guys to do this together. I want you to share in this together. Commune together as you commune with me. The point of this time is to commune with Christ together to remember his sacrifice for our hope of heaven. Jesus died to give us the hope of finishing the race. Every single man and woman in this room, God wants you in heaven. God wants you to experience eternity with him. But in order to get there, you can't show up to church once a holiday. Once a week. God is trying to communicate to us that we need real relationships. We need people who know our stories. We need people who we give our heart to. People who will hold us accountable. People who will show us the truth, the scriptures. Without that, we're not going to make it. And so if you are visiting church here, I want to invite you to study the Bible. To sit down, to get into the scriptures and look at what does it mean to have this kind of relationship with God? What does it mean to really be a part of a church? Being a part of a church does not mean where you show up on Sundays and where you place membership. Being a part of a church means you're communing with people that know who you are. And I know that if you're here, there is at least part of you that is desiring that. Let's learn how to build this koinonia with God and with godly people. We're going to say a prayer as we take communion together. Now I encourage us again, let's meditate on the sacrifice that Jesus made. But remember as well that that sacrifice means that we're supposed to commune with God as we commune together. Father, I just want to thank you so much that we have the opportunity right now to commune with you in a special way. God, thank you that your love for us is so supreme that you'd be willing to send your son Jesus for us as imperfect people, but also, God, for us to have imperfect relationships. Father, I pray that we will not miss this message, 
That we will not miss the opportunity, God. I know that in each and every one of our hearts is the desire to connect with something real. And God, I pray that as we take this communion together, that, that you draw our hearts near to the cross, that you'll help us to see no matter where we are, how much you've been willing to do for us. And God, I pray that your hand would be over the rest of not just today, but our lives as we continue to move forward on our journey to heaven. We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.